0: and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. It is my pleasure to ask Brother Percy to speak to us this morning, the session being, The Coming Day of Yahweh. The Coming Day of Yahweh. My dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus, the great theme of Isaiah's prophecy is The Coming Day of Yahweh. And the day of Yahweh is the day in which he will be vindicated in judgment. It would be an excellent exercise when you're reading through Isaiah once again, to mark in the places where reference is made to the day of Yahweh, or reference it to that day. You will find them frequent throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. Not merely in the chapter that we read this morning, nor in the succeeding ones. But right throughout the prophecy of Isaiah Reference is made to the day of Yahweh You have of course in that second chapter And at verse 12 The day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty And that is the day when he is going to be vindicated in judgment When he is going to be elevated before all mankind In that glorious day Come to the thirteenth chapter of Isaiah See how frequently it is used there How do we read in verse 6 For the day of Yahweh is at hand. Again in verse 9. The whole day of Yahweh cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger. Again in verse 13. The wrath of Yahweh of hosts, and in that day of his fierce anger. You come again to the 14th chapter. And there again in verse 3. It shall come to pass in the day that Yahweh shall give thee rest. And so you see there we have a day of Yahweh again. Chapter 17. And again at verse 4, and in that day it shall come to pass. In verse 7, we have again, at that day shall a man look to his maker. And so on, right throughout the book of Isaiah. And it would be a very, very excellent exercise to mark those places in. This is quite a good form of Bible marking. All you need to do is to have a colored pencil and then mark that passage in. And you'll find that that particular section will stand out before you. Perhaps I might illustrate what I mean by showing you a chapter of the Bible, even from here, you may be able to see it, that I have done that. And there we have a chapter there. I don't know if you can see where I've marked sections in black there, and ringed it around in black. But this is the fifth chapter of Genesis. And the statement that I have ringed around in black in that particular place is, And he died. And you see that occurs in verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 11 and verse 14 and verse 17 and verse 20 and verse 27 and verse 31 and he died and he died and he died and he died and Methuselah might live for 960 years and he died and there with monotonous regularity you have that statement emphasizing the hopelessness of the human race in spite of the long periods of time that they lived then and illustrating the limitation of our opportunity to serve our God and he died and there's only one man of that whom that was not stated in that chapter of course that is Enoch but that's not our theme our theme here in Isaiah prophecy is the day of Yahweh the day when he's going to be vindicated in all the earth when the loftiness of man is going to be reduced and God alone is going to be elevated in that day, and you will find not merely does it uh, express it in the terms of the day of Yahweh, but frequently in the terms of that day. And so you see, if you come back to Isaiah and look, for example, it uh, in uh, the uh, chapter four, for example, in verse one, in that day; verse two, in that day, and so you go on throughout this section of Isaiah. Either does it say the day of Yahweh, or it speaks of in that day. And this is the great theme of his prophecy. Now this morning, if I can just learn how to switch this thing on. Do you know how it switches on? Oh, well, we're both done. <laughs> Thank you. He's <We're> not. <laughs> <See>? Intelligence. <laughs> So we have in the, the, our outline, and we gave a brief introduction to it last night. Today our theme is the day of Yahweh concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That takes us to the end of chapter 6, as you see there. So here we have the day of Yahweh concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it's going to extend right to the 6th uh, chapter. And we're going to see as we come through this section of Isaiah's prophecy, that in, constantly the emphasis is upon in that day. What is going to happen as far as that day is concerned? Now notice as we read that chapter this morning, Isaiah chapter 2, that we have this dramatic statement, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos, saw. Now see, it tells us that he saw a word. Can you see a word? Can you see the word that I am speaking? You can hear them, but he saw them, and that's just the difference. We often hear words, but not see words. We often read a book, but we don't see what the book is teaching. And that's what Isaiah did, he saw those words. He had a mental picture of what they had described. So you see, he merely, not merely heard what Yahweh spake out of him, but he saw it. He took the trouble of picturing it. And you know, that's the best way of reading any book, including the Bible. To read in pictures, to set before your mind a picture of that which you were reading. So you see we read those early verses of Isaiah's prophecy there of chapter 2 It shall come to pass in the last day that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills and nations shall flow towards it I've had the privilege of standing upon the Mount of Olives and looking down upon the city of Jerusalem I've had the privilege of seeing that city as it is today but also considering it in the light of that statement and I have transformed that city before my eyes I've wiped out the present city, and i put a new city there. I see things entirely change. I see the effect of the earthquake, the great valley that's been split between the Mount of Olives. I see the temple there instead of the city of today. I see the people moving up to that city, and it assumes a reality to me that is very, very dramatic. We don't have to be to Jerusalem to see that all we need to do is take the trouble of picturing what we're reading there or picturing any part of the Word of God then like Isaiah the prophet we will see what those words are stating unto us and we will see the future concerning uh, Jerusalem and Judah and notice as you read that chapter that in verse 5 there's a break having stated what's going to happen, having set before us a changed city, having shown us the nations moving up to that center, having stated that he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke any people, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and so forth. Suddenly, dramatically, at verse 5 there's a change. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. You have Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they have been replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves, and the children of strangers, and so forth. So you see, there is an appeal to the people at verse 5, that in view of what has been set before them, that they should turn and walk before their God. So you see, first of all Isaiah sets before us the ultimate picture, and he has that in those four verses. The ultimate picture. And then he sets before us events that will lead up to that consummation. He tells us how wicked the people of Israel have been. And then he reminds us of the day of Yahweh and what that's going to do to the world about us. So we see in a long stretch out prophecy the events that are going to lead to that final consummation. But the final consummation is given first. Now why? It's out of order. Why? Why should God do that? God does that because he expects us or he wants us, he desires us to ever have our minds centered upon the future. We're surrounded by difficult circumstances today. The pressures of life are very, very strong. We know full well that if we are not careful, we may succumb to these pressures. What's the antidote? The antidote is the narrow side of the ultimate picture. The antidote is to always have before us the ultimate purpose of Almighty God and to center our mind upon that future. And if we do that, we will not be affected by the pressures of today. That's the answer and the antidote to every form of trouble, whether that trouble is in the home, whether it's in the business, whether it's in the ecclesia, wherever it might be. The antidote to all that trouble is to see clearly before us the ultimate purpose of Almighty God and so center our mind upon that that it governs our mind to the exclusion of all else. That's what Isaiah did. And he was surrounded by circumstances as difficult as ours today. And that's what every man and woman of of faith has done down through the ages. In the 2nd of Corinthians, chapter 4 and verse 18, we have the words of the Apostle Paul. And in verse 17 he says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now notice the contrast. He compared a light affliction with eternal weight of glory. He compares something which is for a moment for that which is eternal and lasting. See the contrast. And because of that contrast he says in verse 18, While well, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Apostle Paul said, we look not at the things that are seen. We look at the invisible. We see the invisible, he says. Because the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen, which we look at, are eternal. And you know, the Apostle Paul was writing to brethren of Corinth. And Corinth was one of the greatest cities of that age. Corinth was noted for its mighty buildings. Its elegant temples. Its vast business. And it was the centre of absolute, outstanding uh, commercial wealth in those days. Now, Paul says, we look not at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are not seen. For so these things that are seen, these temples, these buildings, this business, these things are temporal but the things that went not. You ever been to Corinth? I've had that privilege. I've walked along the streets of Corinth. I've looked at the ruins of that ancient uh, ancient city. There's nothing there today but ruins. You can look at the aqua currents that rises steeply above you. You can see upon the summit of that the ancient uh, the ruins of the ancient temple that was there when Paul was there. It's not there today, and none of the businesses and none of the mighty buildings are there today, and none of the people that were living there are, there, are living there today. But the things that Paul saw. They will live, and Paul will live. So you see, he was able to see, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's what Isaiah saw. In an age of evil, he saw the invisible. He was a man that lived in advance of his time. And you know, it wasn't only him, it wasn't only Paul that saw the invisible when we come to the 11th chapter of Hebrews we find that this was the theme of every man and woman of faith as we have it outlined in that 11th chapter of Hebrews and you know there's a very interesting statement in that chapter verse 1 I know that there are alternate renditions and possibly those alternate renditions are better but you know there's something, some power about the authorised version there you consider it? faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Faith, says Paul, is a substance. See the strange language that these ancient writers are using. Here's Isaiah speaking about the word that he saw. Now here's Paul speaking about faith as a substance. Can you measure faith? Can you put it in the scales and weigh it? Can you say, look, I've got a pound of faith, or an ounce of faith, or whatever measure you use in this country. Can you do that with faith? You can't but you can with something substance that substance I can feel it it now you can measure that you can weigh it you can see it but you can't measure or weigh or see faith but Paul says faith is a substance and if it is a substance you can see what Paul is telling us is this that faith needs to make substantial the things that are a matter of hope so they are tangible and real and things that we see. So when we speak about the kingdom of God of Jesus Christ coming and the establishment thereon of that way of life that is spoken of in the Word of God, it's not a mere theory to us. It's not something intangible. It's something permanent and real. And we can see it with the eye of faith. That's what Paul did. That's what Isaiah did. That's what we need to do. So you see in that 11th chapter, we read these words concerning Moses that he esteemed, verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. We read concerning that, him that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused it, and the very use of that term refused implies an argument. You can imagine how that the Pharaoh's daughter would have said to him, look Moses, You've been reared for this purpose. We've educated you to be a prince of the realm. Now that you're of age, it's time for you to go out and to enjoy the fruits of that which your education has led you to expect. He refuses it. He refuses it. Why? Because he had respect under the recompense of the reward. More than that, we read in verse 27, he endured us seeing the invisible. He endured us seeing the invisible. Can you see the invisible? Can we see the invisible? You can with an eye of faith and you can make that invisible, intangible thing something real. The world outside will tell you you're a fool. You're wasting your time about the things of God and Christ coming and a kingdom to be established. What reality is that? Here's the real thing. Look, look at the money we can offer you. Look at the advantages we can give you. Moses was saying, to see, and he received the reproach of Christ's greater riches. And being a Jew you a bargain. He can put it in the scales of balances. On the one hand, he how long would he have these witches of Egypt? And I've seen some of them. For 60 years? 40 years? How long? On the other hand, there's eternal life. He could be a ruler in Egypt. He could say, look, I can legislate in, in favor of my people, Israel. For how long? But he can be a ruler in the age to come. And you see, putting it in the balances of uh, value one went down very low and he endured because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward now Isaiah was likewise you see and that is why at the beginning of his prophecy he commences with that theme the the, uh, statement the day of Yahweh concerning Judah and Jerusalem which takes us to the end of the sixth chapter now as you go through that chapter before us you will find that Yahweh is vindicated and you will find that in, in many relationships what I'm going to suggest to you is this that you can go quietly through that section of the prophecy and list down the things that are going to be humbled as they are stated there. List them down and then create your own picture of the future. For example in verse 11 you have national might is going to be reduced in verse 17 you're going to find that uh, personal pride is going to be reduced. In verse 16, the ships of Tarshish, that are now being elevated, will be reduced. In uh, verse 13, you have political prestige as going to be reduced. In verse 20, material possessions will no longer be of any value. You come to chapter 3, and again it's on the same theme because you see in verse 7, In that day. So the theme goes on into chapter 3. And in verse 7, apostate religion is going to be set aside. In verse 9, the prevailing immorality will then cease. You come to uh, the same chapter, verses 4 and 5, and you'll find that the immaturity of this age, in which it says, children are your princes and babes shall rule over you, will be set aside. And then you notice this that in the 60th verse onward he indicts the vanity of that age the daughters of Zion are haughty a walk this way and that way and he describes it but Luke he's dealing with the future he's not dealing with this day notice in verse 18 in that day in that day Yahweh will take away the bravery of their tickling ornaments and so forth and so in that day there's going to be a reduction in the thoughtless vanity of the present And these things are going to be swept out of existence in the day of Yahweh that's going to come upon this earth. You come in the fourth chapter, and you see again in verse 1, in that day, again in verse 2, in that day. And we find that in that day the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and humbly for them that are escaped in Israel. And so now we get the other side of the picture. The day of Yahweh being upon all that flesh stands for, and that being swept out of existence, now that it is replaced with the glory of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ at that particular time. And it speaks there of the elevation of the temple. It speaks there of the worship that shall be set up in the city of Jerusalem. And it speaks there of how there will be a covering over that great temple there, it will be like a tabernacle and in that temple there will be found the glory of Yahweh there shall be, he says in verse 6 a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and a cover from the storm and from the rain so you see you can go through all those chapters and you can consider as you list them down on a piece of paper the things that are going to happen in that day and the judgment that's going to be poured out and the direction in which that judgment is going to be poured out and that which is going to replace it as we have it in the latter portion of chapter. And now having set that section of the prophecy before us we come to a part that shows how completely the ministry of Isaiah foreshadowed that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to tell you now is found throughout this epo- prophecy time and again The ministry of Isaiah foreshadows almost exactly the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have in the fifth chapter the parable of the vineyard. And notice this, that this vineyard was planted by Yahweh and uh, he fenced it, we read in verse 2, and he gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choice of vine and built a tower in the midst of it and made a winepress therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and lo and behold it brought forth wild grapes so he says what am I going to do with my vineyard? I'll break down the fences let the wild beasts come and have their play upon it and they'll eat it and they'll destroy it and I'll lay it waste Now let the wild beasts come in and that's what's happened as far as Israel is concerned as we know because Yahweh having removed his offense the wild beasts in the form of nations have come and eaten down and trotted down that vineyard vineyard But inasmuch as Galway says he will curse them that curse a thief, so punishment has fallen upon those that have done this. An example of course is Hitler's Germany. Hitler's Germany was permitted to ravage the the vineyard, but Hitler's Germany suffered as consequence. Now notice that term, it brought forth wild grapes, not poisonous berries. That form of grape is poison to those that eat it. So you see what happened, that produced poisonous grapes, and the nations or the beasts came in and they ate those grapes, and they died as well. So whilst they were punishing the people of Israel, they themselves suffered. And they suffered because they didn't punish Israel because they wanted to perform the will of God. They punished Israel because they desired and delighted in the downtreading of Israel. And they hated Israel. Not they did not love God, they merely hated Israel and hence they suffered, and now you see it's bringing forth its wild grapes, and the wild beasts are allowed to come in, and they eat those wild grapes, and they suffer in consequence. Now having set forth this parable of the vineyard, what does Isaiah do? He pronounces a series of woes upon the people of Israel. See them in verse 8. Woe unto them that do so and so. Verse 11, Woe unto them that do so and so. Verse 18, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords. Verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine. Woe, woe, woe. Having pronounced the parable of the vineyard, Woe upon Israel. So we come over to the Lord Jesus Christ That other Isaiah and we go to the 21st chapter of Matthew and in the 21st chapter of Matthew we read the Lord Jesus Christ is in the temple he's speaking to the people and he gives them a parable of the vineyard and he says in verse 33 that a household planted a vineyard and hedged it about and digged a winepress and built a tower and let out the husband and went into the far country. They couldn't, they couldn't mistake the origin of that parable. It directly draws attention to Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. And we read in verse 41 that, uh, in verse 40, When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what would he do unto those husbandmen? And the Jewish people are compelled to say he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render unto him the fruits of their season. And you know in Luke chapter 20 in verse 16 where this parable is given they conclude that statement by saying God forbid. God forbid. And he says well what do you understand by thus and so? And notice this, that in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, having given the parable of the vineyard, what do we have there? Notice these words. Verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and pharisees! Verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and pharisees, hypocrites! Verse 16, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, you fools and blind! Verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and pharisees! Verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and pharisees, hypocrites! Almost identical with the words of Isaiah the prophet. So there was a foreshadowing, you see, of the words of Isaiah the prophet in the ministry of, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find that time and again in the prophecy, when the prophecy is compared with the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So we come back to this section of Isaiah once again, and we move on to the sixth chapter. And in the sixth chapter, we have a very, very important statement. Here we have a prophecy that is dated. We have it in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. His train filled the temple. Well, his glory in that temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, you know the history of Isaiah. Isaiah, as I said last night, was a very mighty king. He was greatly helped by Almighty God. But the record says in Chronicles, or Kings, that when he was mighty, his heart was lifted up. And he determined that he would make his way into the temple. And Isaiah made his way into the temple. And he was opposed by the uh, high priest at that time, whose name was Azariah the same as the other name of the king and there in the precincts of the temple the priest and the king came face to face the king is determined to move into that temple he's determined to offer incense the high priest courageously refuses his permission and then as they face to face in anger as they are there in the temple face to face all of a sudden leprosy strikes Azariah in the head So the king, you see, has leprosy on his forehead. While the High Priest has a band of gold with a statement, Holiness to Yahweh. And there they are confronting one another in the temple. And now, as they see the leprosy, the priest realizing that God has spoken, got all of the king and flung him out of the temple. And he was a leper to the Nabig death. And he lived in the leprous house. And he was a personification of the Israel nation, of course because the Israel nation was leprosy in the sight of God. And in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah says, I saw Yahweh upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. We're going to see that what takes place in this sixth chapter is a complete summary of the whole of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told that in this chapter, that Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In What he saw here, he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at that time. But first of all, notice that it was the year that King Isaiah died. He died a leper. And it was a reminder that as far as the nation was concerned, the nation itself was leprous. I want to spend a little bit of time on that because I think it's quite important. You know it was possible for a person to be leper It was also possible under the law of Moses As recorded in the 14th chapter of Leviticus In verses 33 to 53 For a house to be leprous And when a house was leprous There was a certain procedure that had to be adopted First of all the owner of the house Closed it up He called in the priest And it was closed up for seven days And then at the end of seven days, the priest went back and he opened up that house and if it was still had signs of leprosy, the stones were removed that were leprous and they were taken away and new stones put in their place and the place again was locked up. Then again after another seven days, they went back to look at that house and if it was still leprous, they recognized that nothing could be done for it. Every part of that house was broken up it was all conveyed to an unclean place and there it was put away in an unclean place. That's what the law said concerning a leper's house. We never have any information in the Bible wherever that law was invoked against any house. It may have been, I don't know. It's not recorded, however, that that was ever done except to the house of Israel. And the law specifically had relationship to the house of Israel. Now the owner of the house of Israel was Yahweh. And he reported that the house was leprous. You have that in the second of Chronicles, chapter 36, and about verse 15. It says he sent messages rising early, and they would not hear. So you see, the owner reports that the place is leprous. So you, the priest had to be sent to that house. Now when the priest went to the house it was called a visitation. It was a visitation of that house. And when you read the word visitation it really means the visitation to a leprous house. You heard that word for example in Jeremiah chapter 8. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah speaks frequently of the visitation on Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 8 and at verse 12 Jeremiah says therefore shall they fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation they shall be cast down the stones will be broken up and taken away it will be the time of visitation and that's what that word means it was the time when the priest visited that house to see whether it could be reclaimed or not so there was a threefold warning you see and you consider the people of Israel in that regard. First of all Yahweh reported that it was leprous. The priest was sent to it and the place was locked up for a time. But there was no reclamation. So as far as Israel was concerned it was taken into captivity. The stones were removed. And again there was an inspection made. In the days of Nehemiah for example. And finally in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ when the greatest high priest of all visited the nation. In that day it was reported that they were absolutely without any hope whatever. The leprosy was so bad that the nation would be destroyed. And you know he speaks concerning the temple and he shows that they had turned that into a house of a leper. And he says that not one stone shall be left upon another. All will be thrown down. If they liked to turn to the Old Testament Scriptures, they would find that that was the fate of a leprous house. And it was as though the Lord Jesus Christ in the court of the temple was saying, This temple is a leprous house. You've turned it into a den of thieves. It's not a temple any longer, and not one stone shall be left upon another. All will be thrown thrown down. When you come to the 19th chapter of Luke, see the Lord Jesus Christ as He overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And and we read these words in verses 41 onwards. When he had come there, he beheld the city, and he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day the things that belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round about, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even to the ground like a leprous house breaking you down stone by stone until nothing of this house remains and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because you didn't know that time of your visitation. You're leprous. You're incurable. And what happened in the leprous house in Leviticus chapter fourteen will happen unto you. A threefold warning. A threefold warning and then destruction. We're living in the days like under Noah. Let's come to Genesis chapter 6. See the threefold warning there. And bear in mind that there's a threefold warning of this age and generation. So in Genesis chapter 6, in the time of the flood, three times, three times the warning is given to Noah. uh, In verse 3, in verse 7, and in verse 13. In verse 3, Yahweh says, In verse 7, Yahweh said. In verse 13, Elohim said. In verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. At that particular time, the state of the world was such that God says that there is a limited time that I'm going to put up with this. The time of the end had approached. Then you know, I like to parallel that with World War I, because then the gates of Palestine swung open to receive the Jewish people, and Christadelphians realized that they had reached the time of the end. The fact that the Jewish people were going back to their land was a token that the time to favor Zion had come. When the Lord shall raise up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. And then and at that time, Christadelphians realized that even as the doors had swung open to receive the Jewish people the time of the end had come and time was limited that God would not always strive with men and that time was limited as with that first declaration now we come to verse 7 and Yahweh said I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth we come to World War II what happened in World War II What was the most dramatic event as far as the world was concerned? Wasn't the destruction of Hiroshima? Did not men now say that it was in the power of man to destroy the earth itself? Was not that the state in the days of Noah? And now aren't we afraid, the world at large I mean, of the very weapons of destruction that have been forged at this time? If someone presses the wrong button, you know what's going to happen with all the cities of the old world it's going to be a wholesale destruction. And if man used the we- very weapons that he has now uh, manufactured, he would make this earth uninhabitable. So God said, I will destroy man of- whom I have created from the face of the earth. I will destroy. And you know, these are the very words that you find in the Revelation 11 and verse 18. That he would destroy them that would destroy the earth. And those words are cited from the sixth chapter of Genesis. The second warning to humanity, as God looks at the leprous house of Gentilism, and He sees that it is not repented, it's not changing its ways. And finally verse 13, and God said, the end is come. And I believe that in the first declaration, we can parallel World War One. In the second declaration, we can parallel World War II and in a third declaration we can parallel World War Three, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be on the earth and the saints will be with him in that day and they will gently proclaim the end is come and isn't it significant that here in the sixth chapter of Genesis two declarations are given as it were from Yahweh and the third from God or the Elohim and isn't that significant that the warning has come at World War I and World War II and when World War Three is here, so will the Lord Jesus Christ be here and we will be with him in that day. So that you see, as far as Isaiah is concerned, in that sixth chapter, in the year that King Isaiah died, is a very, very significant statement to make upon the basis of that which he now sees, because as far as Isaiah was concerned, he saw this glory. He saw seraphim, every one having six wings, with twenty covered his face, with twenty covered his feet, with twenty did fly. And one cried unto another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of Sabaoth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And you know, those words are cited in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. So that here we have the work of a seraphim in Revelation 4 and verse 8. But the same chapter of Revelation also speaks of the cherubim. Because John saw the four faces of the cherubim. And he heard the four living ones that are significant of the cherubim say, Holy, holy, holy. So the cherubim and the seraphim become one in the book of Revelation. What is represented by the seraphim? You find the word nowhere else in the Bible. And it comes from a root, to consume through burning. To consume through burning. And you know what you read in the 2nd of Peter, chapter 3? That the political world that we know today is going to be consumed through burning. Who's going to be the agents of that? The Lord Jesus Christ and his saints. They're going to be the agents of overthrowing the world about us and purifying this world through burning. And here we have the seraphim. And in the book of John, as we'll see in a moment, we are told that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ in this, in that seraphim. And the world is purged by fire, so that finally, holy, 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 is Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the word cherubim comes from a different root. Brother Thomas has a, uh, a reference that, uh, that aligns it with the word chariot. Or you can take the word and divide it up and it can then become like this majesty. Whichever way, it doesn't really matter. If it's a chariot, you need a charioteer. And if the cherubim are represented as God's chariot, then the charioteer is Yahweh himself that is, deri- that is driving and guiding that chariot. If we're the cherubim... Yahweh must guide and drive us. He must be the motivating power of our life. Or if we take that other, uh, the other rendition, like the majesty, the cherubim represents those who reveal in their lives the qualities of God, who build in their lives divine characteristics, the dura- divine characteristics as I see in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the manifestation of his Father. Whatever the significance of that is, we have it here with the seraphim and the glory that's going to fill the earth. But there was a need for the uh, witness to go forth uh, to the world and so you see we have the representation here of one asking, uh, uh, who shall go for us? Verse 8, I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us. Quite significant. So that you see, as far as, uh, as uh, the statement is concerned, you have both a singular and a plural. Who shall I send and who will go for us? Because, of course, Yahweh is manifested in the multitude. And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes that they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart lest rather they do all this and be converted and be healed. And the question is how long? And the answer is until the cities be wasted without inhabitants and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate and Yahweh hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land." The leprous house, you see, the leprous house, after the witness has gone forth, as it did in Jesus Christ. And that epitomized the the uh, work of Christ and the ministry of Christ. Come over to the thirteenth chapter of Matthew. and in verse 10 in Matthew chapter 13, the Apostle says, why speak to them in parables? And he quotes in verse 14 the prophecy of Isaiah. He said to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their eyes, ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes are they closed. He spake to them in parables to fulfill the the prophecy of Isaiah. But why do it? Why not make it clear and plain? Because you see the things that God has to offer unto us and the things that Jesus Christ had to offer unto that generation are things so important that it demands some close attention of those who want to experience the benefits thereby. And the truth is like that even today. You know we improve upon the Lord's methods We go out of our way to simplify the things that He never simplified. We give a person the herald of the coming age or a copy of the Declaration. We say that's the truth. Believe that and you're on the way to salvation. Yahweh doesn't treat with His word in that way. He makes it difficult. This is the most difficult book you can ever read. There's no book so difficult as that. And why has He made that book difficult? Because He doesn't want to tell us something, He wants to change it. and that book is designed in that way that if we want to understand it thoroughly we must give our attention to it we must think upon it and the impact of that must be in there and that's only possible with a difficult book that whilst it's difficult it's a very exciting book it's a book that you can read and read and read once and again and once and again and you will never, never exhaust its beauty it's a tremendously interesting book and that book is given unto us to change our way of thought, not to teach us the kingdom. God doesn't care whether we know about the kingdom so much as he does that we are going to be changed for the kingdom of God. When he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he was insisted upon the fact that they came out to manifest his glory. And when they did not of the two million people that were baptized, one million nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight perished in the wilderness. I hope I've got the figure right, <laughs> if not, <laughs> bringing on to the, uh, Moses. But you see, there we have the, the, the principle that was set forth before the people there. Now the Lord Jesus Christ came offering eternal life, and that offer was a real offer, and therefore He spake to them in this way, because He expected them to give thought to this book. So He spoke to them in parables, number one, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Number two, it set before them special instruction that they had to exercise their mind to come to understand. Again, it was a more telling and unanswerable form of reproof. Again, it was a more effective means of illustrating truth to anyone that was prepared to seek it out. And if they weren't prepared to seek it out, he wasn't interested in them. So he deliberately made it difficult. And you know, even when he was treating with these apostles, he did that. Time and again, you know, they were making mistakes. We would take hold of a person and take him aside and we would explain it all to him and perhaps that's what we ought to do. But as far as the Lord is concerned, in the greater wisdom that he had, he was able to guide those men until the circumstances of their life completely changed them. So you see, different men emerge when you look at the men that follow Jesus Christ and the men that are proclaiming the truth as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. What I'm getting at is this, brethren and sisters, that we are living in a very difficult age. And the Apostle Paul said, it is through much tribulation we shall enter the kingdom of God. And the word that he used, tribulation, signifies pressure. And we face pressures on every side. And unless there is a compensating pressure within, the pressures without will, will crush us. So we must have a pressure within to resist that from without. Our young people need it. We all need it. And if that pressure is there, that counter pressure will resist the pressures from without. And we won't be destroyed and it's as simple as that that's why it's vitally important for us wherever we might be in our families in our ecclesias, to have this word motivating our lives to study that word to build into our lives that counteracting pressure that will resist that from without you know Barnabas exhorted and he said with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. That was the full extent of his exhortation. It may have taken an hour. Reduced down to the essential point, as we have it in the Acts of the Apostles, with purpose of heart, they should cleave unto the Lord. Barnabas exhorted, you can't drift into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be your main objective in life. You must have a purpose, an objective in life. And when a person has a purpose and an objective in life, he will gain the ability to attain unto that purpose and objective. If you have no objective in life, you'll get nowhere. If you set yourself a task, and you set yourself a task, and you go and aim for that, to to complete that task, you will fulfill that task. It's as simple as that. But if you have no purpose in life, if you think you're just going to wander into the kingdom of God, you're going to make a terrible mistake. You know in the last words of Moses in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy some words that I've got underlined in my Bible because in verse 46 of Deuteronomy 32 Moses in the last words he was speaking to the people before he ascended up to Mount Nebo when he was going to die he says set your hearts set your hearts and all the words I testify among you this day and in verse 47 it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. Because it is your life. There was an urgency about it. So he said, set your heart unto all the words that I testify among you this day. Verse 47, it is not a vain thing to you, it is your life. And so, see, when the Lord Jesus Christ came and he preached to the people, he preached in these parables, And those parables were set forth before them, in order that they might search more deeply into the things that he had to offer unto them. In the twelfth chapter of John, and verses 37 to 41, we read a summary of the whole ministry of the Lord. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who hath believed their report, and to whom is the arm of of Yahweh revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because the Messiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah saw in that sixth chapter and spake of him. And so he summarized the uh, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is at the conclusion of his ministry and sums up with the words of Isaiah chapter six that he saw the year King Isaiah died. And it wasn't long afterwards that that leprous house was overthrown in AD 70 you know when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross and they had hammered the nails into his hands and his feet and had taken the cross and put it in the ground and every bone in his body must have jarred, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ said and said continuously it says he said continuously Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And you know, God answered that prayer. He answered the prayer in Acts chapter 6. He answered the prayer because Acts chapter 6 is an answer to that prayer. You know, when you read Acts chapter 6... Oh, what's the matter with me? When you read the book of Acts, not Acts chapter 6. The whole of the book of Acts is an answer to the prayer of Christ upon the cross. Because the the Book of Acts was the was the request of the Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles to go forth and preach to his people the things concerning himself. They were to be his witnesses in Judah and Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The same as Isaiah see Judah, Jerusalem, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, when they went forth, we read concerning their ministry that Paul says it was necessary that we should first turn to the Jews. But seeing you put yourselves and count yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. He said it was necessary for us to first of all preach to the Jews. Do we do that today? We do not. Why did they do it then? Why is the Acts of the Apostles devoted exclusively to the preaching to the Jewish people? Why was it that the first thing that the Apostle Paul did when he came to a city was to seek out a synagogue and preach in that synagogue? Because of the prayer of Jesus Christ and because he went forth as a minister to that end. And uh, the Apostle Paul went first to Jerusalem, believing that his witness, would be sufficient to turn his people. Instead, they took him captive and tried to kill him. Then he made his way to Rome, the great capital of the Gentile world, where was a large community of the Jewish people. And there again he set before those Jews the same principles as he had in the city of Jerusalem. And when they rejected it, what did Paul do? He quoted from Isaiah chapter 6 and terminated his work to the Jews. Have you ever noticed that? That's why the act stops at that point where he's two years in his prison. People say Luke made a mistake, he should have finished his life. Luke's not dealing with the life of Paul. Luke is showing how the God had answered the prayer of his son upon the cross and gave another opportunity to the Jewish people to hearken unto the witness and they refused it. So you see, when you come to that 28th chapter of the acts, And you read concerning Paul as he gathered the people to him, the Jewish people, and he spoke to them concerning the things of God. And we read that some believed and some believed not, and they argued among themselves. And he terminates this work by saying in verse 25, Well spake the Holy Spirit by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and not shall not understand, Seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gloss, And their ears are dull of hearing, And their eyes have they closed, Lest they should see with their eyes, And hear with their ears, And understand with their heart, And should be converted, And I should hear it. Be it known therefore unto you, That the salvation of God Is now sent unto the Gentiles, And they will hear it. And that terminated the witness to the Jewish people. And we read that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Previously they did. They said you should preach first to the Jews. No longer does Paul do that. The ministry is completed. The work, as it was set forth in Isaiah chapter 6, had been completed first by the Lord Jesus Christ, now by the apostles, and now the times of the Gentiles had been ushered in, and it was for them to harken to the things of God. And so that part of the ministry of Isaiah was completed. And we must complete our section, our session at that point as well, and we hope God willing to deal with the book of Emmanuel tomorrow.